Amen. All right, good morning. Um, so today we start the book, book of 1 John. Um, it, is, it is the heart of the elders in this church to, to preach the Word of God, so we're, we're just excited that we get to start a new book. Um, I'm just going to give you a, a quick history into the book of John, 1 John. First uh, John was written in AD 90, kind of in between kind of the destruction of the temple and what would be known as severe persecutions. That's uh, kind of how we find these timelines, is what the author is speaking about in the books. Um, John is known to be the writer of First John. There's no real dispute in that. Uh, the structure, the style, the vocabulary of the book is very similar to the book of John. Right? So you have these beautiful parallels in the way that John speaks. And an interesting thought is that John, his anonymity in this book is very evident, that he does not exercise his apostolic authority to bring credibility to the message. So this would probably be unlike Peter. Probably Peter would take that opportunity upon himself uh, John and Peter are different, right? Just like we are different, all the apostles were different in the way that they spoke. And what you see is this beautiful tapestry of God's word inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by unique personalities of each one of these apostles. Uh, John's epistle was written to believers in Asia Minor. Uh, the goal of the book is to encourage believers who faced challenges in their faith. Huh? Nothing new, right? At this time, there were various groups whose teachings opposed Christianity. Uh, those were, those t thoughts were infiltrating the church, and they were denying key fundamentals of the faith. Uh, things like the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, personal holiness, among many others. So, John is encouraging them to press on in fellowship, with Christ and to not be drawn away by the heresies of the day. He's instructing them to press on as one. And most of these influences were coming from the outside world. They were coming from Gentile influence. So the book of 1 John is broken into four major themes. Number one, Warnings on morality and sin, which we'll discuss today. Number two, love for the things of the world versus love for Christ. Number three, having a pure love for the brothers and sisters. And number four, true faith lies in Christ alone as the foundation of our Christian faith. So I'm going to read 1 John, and then we'll pray and we'll break it down. 1 John 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So this is the message. 
We have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you for this word. Father, I pray that the truth of your word would be evident, that it would be spoken in such a way, Lord, that it would land in our hearts in a fresh and real new way, that our lives would be changed, Lord, that we would see you in light of who you truly are. Oh, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you today for your people, for our joy and your glory. Amen. All right, so let's break this down. Verses one through four. So we start in the beginning. Now, one of my favorite attributes of God is the aseity of God. The aseity of God means that he is self-existent, that God is not a creature. He cannot die. He's not dependent upon anyone or anything, that nothing would exist without this and nothing can create itself except for God. He is the power of his own being. He transcends and he is the only infinite one. He and he alone deserves honor and glory and praise and obedience and worship. Revelation 22 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, that everything starts with God and everything ends with God. So this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient God is revealing himself to a small group of chosen men. Verse 1 says, We have heard it with our ears. We have seen it with our eyes. We've touched it with our hands concerning the word of life. So God is giving the apostles a very clear, rational, powerful evidence and he's going to play on all of the senses. When you taste coffee, you know it's coffee, right? When you smell coffee, you know it's coffee. In fact, you kind of feel coffee, you know that it's coffee. But it's when you smell it, and when you taste it, and when you do all of those things, we know that it's coffee. Senses make things real to us. And God was revealing Jesus to them with every fiber of their being. And God did this so they would be genuine representatives and so they would be willing to lay down their lives for this message. Now, something we don't think about very often. We know that Jesus died for us, right? But so did the apostles. Now, their blood didn't bring you to God that you might know him. But it's a good reminder that the apostles died for you. They laid down their lives for the message of why we're here today. Okay. 
Verse 2, the word of life made manifest. So word here stands for the preexistent nature of Christ, his divine nature spoken of before and at the time of Christ. The word became flesh and was thus the Messiah. The famous words, the beginning, the gospel of John, the word made flesh. So made manifest, the word in Greek is phanero, which means to appear, to make clear, to display, to make apparent, all very similar words. But this was not just some person, right? This was not just some prophet, not just some priest, not just some king. No, this was the one that would be foretold by the prophets. Isaiah 7.14 prophesies that a pure young woman will also give birth to God's son. Isn't it amazing? That everything in the New Testament was affirmed first in the Old Testament. Right? And the preeminent one, the one that would defeat death, the one that would crush the head of the serpent, that would finally restore harmony between God and man and his chosen people, Jesus Christ. Kind of interesting. I, I love to listen to John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul kind of talk through things together and they were talking about Jesus being like, who is Jesus? And, you know, John MacArthur gets up there, he says, you know, what you would expect, which is the common answer, that Jesus is what? He's fully God and fully man. And R.C. kind of interrupts him and says, no, Johnny, no, Johnny Mac, that's not enough. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Veritas. It sounds like even full can be a little bit less full or maybe a little bit of half, half of a cup. No. Jesus is so preeminent, so awesome, that nothing but the word true is appropriate. So, I should have had an outline, but, but young and old, if you want to write some notes here and there, this is a good one. Two really, really good verses to learn together on the preeminence of Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. And I must always in my life, if I'm talking about Christ in this way, I'm going to glue it to this verse. Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven in which men must be saved. So the apostles tasted the goodness of God through the manifest presence of Jesus, and they testified to it. They were eyewitnesses. This is a big deal in a court of law. They saw it with their own eyes. And not just Jesus, but they saw Moses and Elijah and the actual audible voice of God himself. You think about Matthew 17, 5, the transfiguration. These guys are just blown away in this moment in time. And what does God say in an audible voice? Right? This is my son whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So God went to great lengths to prepare them to bring the greatest proclamation in the history of mankind. They were going to declare to the world eternal life through Jesus Christ alone. And there's no message in the history of the world that compares to the message of the cross. Amen. It cuts to the heart. It's the only message that lands deep in a broken, dead, stone-cold heart and makes it new. Dead, dry bones made alive. 
all through the power of God, through the gospel received by faith. One of the greatest mysteries in the history of the world. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. All right, so God did this radical spiritual heart surgery in these guys' lives to each apostle. And they had true fellowship with the living God and with Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that there's really no place in this whole message where God and Jesus Christ are separated. It's a good reminder. This was a personal, intimate interaction with God and Jesus himself. So what was the apostles' response to this? As we go into verse 3, this is their response. Okay, we proclaim also to you so that you too, speaking to the church and to you, may have koinonia, fellowship, communion, participation, to share in. So see, they're not going to keep this message to themselves. They're not hiding the light in the darkness. This is no whisper. They're going to shout this message to the rooftops. And they're going to say what God has done for us, he wants to do for you. And that was said then as it's said now. It's the same message. That God wants us to have the type of fellowship that the apostles had. What an invitation that God makes continually to us in his church. I love this picture in the book of Acts there. I, I think we sometimes um, overvalue one area of the pouring out of the Spirit, and we forget that there actually were four distinct manifestations of the Spirit, the pouring out of his Spirit on all flesh in the book of Acts. This is not just to the Jews. These four distinct manifestations were for all believers. No haves and have-nots. My spirit will be represented in every tribe, every nation, and every tongue in the world. All right, so the end of verse 3 says, fellowship of the Father and the Son. You hear me mention that the two are one, right? It's a very unique mystery in in the scriptures. So John 14, 8 says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. So many say they believe in God, okay? Is that enough? No, it's not enough. James 19 says even the demons believe in shudder. Now one of the tests of genuine faith in the life of a believer is the exaltation the name of Jesus above all names. But is recognizing the name of Jesus, that he exists, is that enough? No, it's not. Matthew 7, 23 says, Many will come to me in that day, and I will say, Depart, you works of iniquity. I never knew you. So this is not just information. This is not just knowledge. This is knowing John 17, 3 says, eternal life is this, that you may know the one true God and that you might know his son. That's where you need a word study. Our faith is about knowing God. And Jesus died to bring us to God that we might know him. 
And if you really dive into knowing in the Bible, you're going to find very intimate language, almost as intimate as it comes. So verse 4 says, I'm writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the Greek word means of, for complete means perfect. Now, that's a different word to me, right? Sometimes these, these words, when you're doing a word study, they're very, very similar, and so why even do it? And then you land on something like knowing or you land on something like complete and you're like, that's way different. It's one thing to complete your math exam. It's another thing to get a perfect score. That's amazing to me. So this, this whole thing was not just about a message to get saved, right? This was not just a, a ticket out of hell. Right? That'd probably be enough, would it not? Amen. Right? But John says, I want you to have a holy joy, a greater, more perfect joy, a lasting joy that surpasses anything that the world has to offer, a joy that sustains through great tragedy. So that's the good stuff, is it not? The things that we really desire in our life, if we're honest. Does that ask the question to you? Is that ask the same thing to me? I mean, are your toys making you... Joyful with a holy joy. I'm thankful for all the good gifts that God gives us. When happiness comes and goes, and stuff eventually burns and decays and rots away, but not holy joy. And that's what God's offering us. There is a connection. So you tune in and tune out. This would be a tune in moment. There's a connection between fellowship with the church and holy joy. And I think it's fair to say that we'll never experience that type of joy apart from the church. And not just attending. You can't just sit in a seat. It's not signing a piece of paper either, by the way. You come up here and sign a piece of paper, it's, you know, we, we don't even do that. But it's about being connected with the church, loving the church, serving the church. The old cliche-ish walking out life. With, right? There's some truth to that. When the church is unified and like-minded, when we lock arms together, we weep together, rejoice together as one. You know, weddings together. I mean, look at the old Rutledge family. They're all getting married. You guys might as well do a rededication. You know, like, you know, <laughs> You know, we'll do it. We'll, you know, cook up a pig. You know, it's cut me in. I mean, um, we're going to get to enjoy those moments with them. Right? And then I look at Cliff and Cliff's dad passing away. He's got the opposite of that. But we walk through those things together. And I think if Cliff is honest, there'd be something in there, somewhere in a moment when Cody arrived on the scene that brought you a certain sense of joy. To know that your church loved you and that we care for one another. When we go through difficulty, we're doing it together. You're not alone. Amen. So verse 5. So here's the message. I haven't even got there. 
This is the message that he's actually trying to get. But you don't have that foundation. You're really missing it. All right? That's why chapter 1 is enough for today. This is the message that we have heard from him and we proclaim to you. So John is, this is really important, John is simply a herald and a steward and an ambassador for Jesus Christ. A herald speaks on behalf of the king. He's not giving his advice or his opinion. It's the same thing for Cody and AJ and I. We are simply heralds of a message. Don't shoot the messenger. And we do that with great fear and reverence, that we would be obedient to the scriptures, that we'd properly handle God's word. We would take things out of context, cherry pick verses to make you feel better but that we would just simply represent Christ in His Word. That's our desire anyway, by God's grace. So their, their ambition and their drive was to deliver the triune God's personal message to mankind. And here's the message. Here's the message. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. So light represents all the substance of God's attributes. This is not doing it justice, but we'll do just a little bit. His character, His holiness, His purity, all that encompasses who God is. And God cannot have fellowship with darkness at all. What is darkness? Darkness is pretty much the absence of light. Verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So to walk in darkness is simply to continue to sin. John 3.19 says, Light has come, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Come into the light and what happens? Get exposed. See it for what it really is. And left to our own volition, we choose darkness every time. We are spiritually dead apart from the working of God through the gospel. Amen. You could give a hundred uh, stories or, um, of darkness. I just think of the bar scene. I think of low lighting, the allures of fantasy, drunkenness, fornication. You know, sin is always glued to darkness. And you think about that environment and how good it feels in the moment. And we could, like I said, we could point to many things. Probably in our day, it's more a cell phone in the corner of a house somewhere than it is in some of these places. Same sin. And at the end of the night, whoever the owner is or the manager of the bar comes and turns on the light. And what do you see? The nasty truth of the reality of sin. As light exposes darkness, and we see sin for what it truly is. You see, sin's a dirty liar. And children, who are, who, who's the father of those dirty lies? Huh? Who's the father of lies? Satan himself. And what does the liar like to say? It's just stay in the dark. Living in the dark can feel good for a while, can it? The sin does feel good for a while. But then we stumble on Hebrews 11.25 and speaks the truth on sin and says that pleasures of sin are for a season and ultimately leads to death. 
So to walk in the light is to live in obedience. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So you and I are walking with Jesus. If you are a believer, we are walking with Jesus on the narrow road. And the good news I'd give you on that walk is that God is committed to keeping you on that path, right? So it's amazing how the doctrines of grace just slide into all these messages. You going to fall off that road? Not if you belong to him. He'll keep you on the path. So let's talk about the walk real quick, right? Let's talk about the walk. Great study if you want a really good study. Study what it means to walk in the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, just a little bit here. So Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Young and old, great memory verse. Galatians 5.16. So how do we do that? Well, walk implies an ongoing direction and empowerment. It means yielding to God surrendering. It implies personal involvement by the Holy Spirit and you. To keep in step with the Spirit means to walk in line behind a leader. Be careful who you're following. Young people, who are you following? Are you following Jesus? Are you following the world? Are you following somebody that has bad influence in your life? I mean, just questions to be asked. Ultimately, Jesus is our leader and we're following him. And we're to keep our eyes on him as we follow. Okay. When we walk in the light, there are two promises from this text that you get. When we walk in the light... Number one, we get true fellowship with believers. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. What a great verse. So we try to be super intentional about this in this church. And, and we're not perfect with it, but I'd like to think we do pretty well and we'd like to continue to grow in that area. And you do that as you get to know one another. Not many churches are praying together in the morning. And I think it's a really big deal. It's become a really, really big deal in this church. When we tell each other our weaknesses and we pray, that's confession. And in a few minutes, I'm going to blow your mind on that, the idea of confession. Number two, we get cleansing from the blood of Jesus Christ. You actually see this theme multiple times. That's why I hope I'm not repeating myself because he actually says it a couple different times. Then when we walk in the light, we get that promise from Ephesians 2.13 that I've been saying over and over and over again that you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? How far off were you? Farther, you know, the, the leper was in better condition than we were. We were not a part of that fellowship. We were far off. So, in quick summary, in the light equals obedience... And darkness equals disobedience. Now, you might be saying, I'm not always obedient. 
So am I in the dark. Verses 5 through 7, this is an important moment, so tune in if you've tuned out. Verses 5 through 7 is not about Christian imperfection. But it is contrasting those who have a genuine, true fellowship with God and what that lifestyle looks like and those who simply do not. That should bring us conviction and it should bring us satisfaction. Okay? Now, verses 8 through 10, here it is, right? And this is kind of the big part of the text for today. And it carries a lot of weight with it. We say this verse almost every week because it's so important. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The idea of having no sin is a delusion. So, sometimes we need to get a little bit battered, but if mercy triumphs over judgment, it'll be okay. Okay? You and I are worse off than we even imagine. And I'm going to read from you This is Charles Spurgeon's Expository Encyclopedia. I got the whole collection for $30. It's a really, really nice gift for my wife. Okay? Remember the sins of your holy things, your Sabbath sins, your sanctuary sins, the sins against your Bible, your sins against prayer, your sins against the Father, the blood of Christ, and the strivings of the Spirit. Oh, how many are these? Think of your sins of omission, your failures in duty, your shortcomings in spirit. Repent of what you've done and what you have not done. Oh, how both forms of these iniquity may stagger and humble you. Think of your sins of heart. How cold has that heart been towards your Savior? Your sins of thought, how wrongly your mind is often judged. Your sins of imagination, what filthy creatures your imagination has portrayed in lively colors on the wall. Think of all your sins and all your desires and your delights and hopes and fears. What faculty has there been that is not defiled? The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. We are bound to confess the aggravations of our sin, how we have sinned against the light, We've sinned against knowledge, against conscience, against divine love, against the monitions of the Holy Spirit, against tender warnings which came from His gentle voice. Let us take care that we confess all. And then let us try to see the heinousness of all sin as an offense against a kind, good, loving God, a sin against a perfect law intended for our good. Whew. Now, if we don't understand our relationship with sin, if we don't understand our, what the Scripture has to say about these things, then, you know, that would, that's going to hurt you. But it should hurt us a little bit anyway. Christianity is the religion of sinners. Now, what that doesn't mean is that we give an excuse to sin, or we love sin, or we play the hypocrite. That doesn't mean that. But when we truly understand the moral laws of God, when we truly understand the holiness of God and that God is using the law to draw us to Christ, 
And it's just like what Paul said in Romans 7.24. A wretched man that I am. I mean, yes, but Paul knew Christ. Paul was walking with Christ. Paul is the greatest spokesman for the gospel in the history of the world. Wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me from this body of death? It's not the end of the story. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said it this way. If you say you have no sin, you have achieved a fearful success. You have put on your own eyes and perverted your own reason. You have fed upon falsehood till it has entered your very being and rendered you incapable of truth. We would say it this way. We missed the mark. And so you're thankful for guys like Spurgeon who gave their lives dedicated to reading the scriptures to be able to carry these words today. We have missed the mark of perfection. We've swerved from the truth. And as, as believers, we are prone to wander by nature and by practice. And we're desperate for the blood and we're thankful for it. All right. So, another, another moment, kids. This is a good one right here. Kids and adults. This is a really, really great definition of confession. Okay? So, to confess, homologio in the Greek, means to agree with God. Right? And God doesn't need information. Right? He, he already knows it all. To agree with God and recognize the severity of our sin to accept responsibility for our sin, and plead for the necessary grace to turn from our sin. That is from Pastor Joel Weban, and I thought that was very complete and helpful. Because what do we tend to do if we're honest? I think we gloss sin over. We say, you know, we, we come to one of our, our spouses or a sibling, whatever, and we say, I, I'm sorry, I offended you. And, and the response is often, uh, no big deal, right? It's, I, no big deal. It is a big deal. Like we need to confess and we need to receive forgiveness. I forgive you. It's a big deal. And we tend to blame others. We don't own up to our sin. And we tend to rely on our own strength to overcome it. And I think it's so easy, and I'd be the first one to look in the mirror and say it's so easy to come on a one-time daily, one-time or daily moment of just giving a weekly, stone-cold, heartless ritual of confession. Spurgeon would say, to confess does not merely on some one occasion to repeat a catalog of sins before God, but a lifelong acknowledgement of our sin. We must not occupy the position of innocence, because who did that best in the New Testament? The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, claiming some form of righteousness, looking great on the outside and just rotting inside. So I'm going to read one more time in hopes that, that, that God would give us another good tune-in moment here, a bigger picture of what confession means. So I'm going to read from page 187 here. 
When a man prayerfully begs that he may feel the power of the blood of Jesus, he is confessing sin. For he, for is not the blood of Jesus needful because of our sin? The daily exercise of faith in Jesus Christ is a confession of sin. For nobody would need to believe in a Savior unless he had sin. Baptism is a confession of sin. Who needs to be buried with Christ if he be alive by a righteousness of his own? To come to the communion table and remember there, there the atoning sacrifice is a confession of sin. For we should need no remembrance of our blessed substitute if we were not sinners. Confession of sin is best carried out when we deal with God as those who have offended him, not as those who feel they are innocent. We are to act before the Lord as those who know that sin is in them, and how ought such to behave? They will walk with God very humbly and watchfully, jealous lest inbred corruption should get the mastery of them. Such persons will daily cry to the strong for strength. And what is prayer for strength but a confession of weakness caused by sin? What is watchfulness but a confession that our nature still needs holding in check? I mean, that really encouraged me when I read that. That's not just kind of sitting around, how did I fail you, Lord, once a week? That our lives should be marked by this. Recognizing your need for God is confession. We also need the grace to turn from our sin. But but first, I want to give just a a quick reminder of our relationship with sin. And this has always been really helpful. I heard this when I first moved to Nashville at Christ Community Church in a Bible study with with, uh, Scotty Smith. Number one, we have died to the powers of sin. Romans 6, 7, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer bound to those chains. We are slaves to righteousness. That is the truth. Number two, we died to the penalties of sin. Romans 8, we're no longer condemned. You've been set free. But number three, we have not died to sin's presence. There are natural consequences for our sin in which we should pay attention. Enemies still lurks in every corner. John 10.10 says the thief comes to what? Kill and to steal and destroy families and ministries and marriages. And you see it all over. It's a dirty world we live in. And we're going to talk more about that in the days to come in this this message. And we are not yet perfected. And unfortunately, our human hearts are still inclined to sin. And in this world, we will never be completely free from sin. But let us be reminded that in Christ you're justified. Because the enemy can't touch that. Not if you're truly saved. And now we are being sanctified. Sanctification is the process of growing in holiness. And let me just simply say that personal holiness and confession is a really big deal. 
And if you want to know the type of church to avoid, avoid the churches that preach not the holiness of God and tell you not to confess your sins. And there are plenty. Avoid them. So God is growing, right? As Christians, we should have a growing sorrow towards sin, a a growing grieving towards sin. And God is lessening our grip of sin as we grow in him. As we get a greater glimpse of who he is, and I'd point out Isaiah 6, 5, as the prophet got a glimpse of the glory of God and what did he say? Just get a little glimpse of God and what do you say? Woe is me, man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. So the more we see the God of the Bible, the more we see who he is, the more we see sin for what it is. And God's primary goal in our life is to make us more like Jesus, to conform us into the image of his son one day at a time. And I would say that one day at a time because you know that's a slow grind and we need to show each other grace. We need to remember the weaker brother and remember that many times we have all been weak. We should warn one another. We should take it serious. But we need to show grace. We need to remember that we cannot overcome sin on our own. We must plead with God for the grace to turn. Remember, repentance isn't just giving a list and moving on. You know, it's a beautiful thing that God has given us a helper. And we hear this and we know it's coming. We know the Holy Spirit's coming. But you know, Jesus said, I'm going to send you another paraclete. He said another because Jesus himself is the paraclete. That the Holy Spirit has been given to produce fruit in our lives and to kill sin. We don't kill it on our own. We have the Holy Spirit. But not only do we have the Holy Spirit to believe and to obey and to understand, because we can do none of those things without the Holy Spirit, but we have the triune God taking up residence in our entire being. Now, Jesus didn't leave and, he, and the Holy Spirit comes and we don't get the Father or the Son. We get all three of them. And they're all fighting for us. And Jesus is interceding for us. And God the Father loves us. It's a great picture. Okay, in application as we're on the home stretch here. <clears throat> this is the Word of God and we need to look in application. How does it affect our lives appropriately? We just say to, why do we confess? One of the reasons why we confess, just because God says to. Sometimes we just need to do what God says. We just need to believe what he says. But here are some biblical strategies for turning against sin and its deceptions in our life. Number one, confess. Remember, if you're in the light, what do you do? You confess. In the darkness, you don't confess. Okay? You're in the light. It's what we do. The man whose heart is in the light loves to do the right. That's Charles Spurgeon. And let me just tag onto that, that the more we grow, the more mature we are in the Lord. 
the quicker we are to respond to our sin and to recognize it. You know? um, we hurt our spouse, we make a mistake, we say something stupid, we're impatient, whatever, we're angry. Just recognize it quicker and quicker. You know, put off the blame less and less to other people and we just own it. This. Number two, the power of sin grows in the dark. Bring your sin into the light. If we have honest dealings with God, He will meet us there. He welcomes us. Let me also say it's a bit of a sham, as Charles Spurgeon would say, to try to make up stuff that you didn't do. We are utterly sinful, utterly sinful but we don't need to make up things to, you know, God knows, right? And if there's something there, we'll recognize it and know it. But God appreciates our honesty. Number three, feed on God's word and prayer like your life depends upon it. For apart from it, you will be immature, weak, and ultimately fall. I tell my children this all the time. If you're going to stand in your faith, you'll stand by the word of God and by prayer, or you will not. As Paul Washer says, you should be, we should be taking in copious amounts of the word of God. It's the only way, it's the only hope that we have to feast upon the word of God. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And number four is flee temptation. Temptation is not sin. You and I are going to be, we're going to be tempted all the time. Those temptations even sometimes feel right, feel good, and they're not. Don't play with the vipers. Don't play with the snakes. I recently saw a video this guy that had taken this big snapping turtle, and it was a big snapping turtle, and he took it from its leg, which is evidently really painful for the turtle, and he's going like this, a bunch of people are watching, and ah, ha, and he goes, he sticks his nose down by that turtle, that big snapping turtle had a, had a head that was like bigger than my hand, and that snapping turtle bit his mouth, just, just playing with the turtle. His sin will nip you. Don't invite sin to the dinner table and cozy up with it. How often do we do that? Through our entertainment, through whatever. Kill it quick and then move on. One of the signs of maturity is recognizing sin. I've already mentioned that. And then let me just say this. And then we just press on and move on. How many of us look back in the history of our lives, the regrets we've had, the mistakes we've made, you know, and it just haunts us. And we don't need to do that. Amen. we got to move on. Two aspects to the atonement as we kind of wrap things up is have these reminders of the sacrifice that Christ was for us and implications in our life. Jesus Christ's death satisfied God's wrath towards your sin. You broke the law, Jesus paid the fine. That's finished work. You cannot earn it and you do not deserve it. That's good news. Your sins were carried away by Jesus Christ. You got this vertical propitiation that God's wrath was satisfied. Okay, it was accomplished. And then you have this, this expiation, which is this horizontal picture that was represented in the Old Testament by the goat. They would just send that thing away. Get out of here. All right? Jesus carried your sins as far as the east is from the west. Gone. Your guilt driven out. 
Romans 6 says, sin will have no dominion over you, for you are free in Christ. I'm just going to end it on this. So, John MacArthur, give or take, he's at the last season of his life. He's fought a good fight. I don't think he's sick or anything. But he looks feeble to me. And John has just given his life for the gospel. Studied scripture eight hours a day for his whole life. Forty straight years of studying the Bible. Eight hours a day. There have been many men like that. And in an interview, they asked John, John, what are you looking forward to most? It's right around the corner. Streets of gold, John? Which is a really good test of our heart, is it not? Like, he said, no. Just the absence of sin. Tired of sin. Fought a good fight of faith his whole life. And what's he looking forward to most? No more sin. I pray that that be our desire, that we would look forward to that type of fellowship with one another. Until then, as Annie mentioned upstairs, this is one of the greatest representations of what we can have in the here and now when we're together. When we pray together, we read the Word and we worship and we eat together. So we're going to enter into a time of communion as the guys come up. Um, I would, I would just say that we would allow this to be a time of general reflection on this message on um, what Christ has done for us. Because it's amazing when we focus on Christ and what He's done for us and who God is. We see the ho holiness of God. That just draws us too naturally onto our knees. And